In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. I'm joined in this episode by Deborah Waterhouse, who has been CEO of Eve Healthcare for more than two years, following a long career in the pharmaceutical industry. Deborah was a featured speaker at our CSIS Global Health Policy Center public event focused on innovative HIV technology, which took place on October 22, 2019. The barriers to ensuring new HIV prevention and treatment tools reach those who need them are inhibiting progress toward HIV epidemic control goals, both in the United States and globally. As Vive Healthcare is focused solely on HIV technology and ending HIV as a public health threat, Deborah is well positioned to help us understand how to enable access to the innovative tools that are already on the market and how to mitigate the barriers for the next generation of products. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Vive Healthcare is unique in the pharmaceutical space by being specifically and, and uniquely focused on HIV. Can you tell me a little bit about Vive's mission and how you've seen the company evolve over your tenure? Over the last kind of few years, a lot has changed actually. But what I'll do to answer that question is take you back to the beginning of Vive and talk a little bit about um, who we are and what our mission and our purpose is. So the purpose of the company is to leave no person living with HIV behind anywhere in the world. And that is really at the core of who we are. It's why people turn up to work every single day because they want to make sure that what we're doing is for all of the 37 million people who are living with HIV. In terms of the company, we are 100% focused on HIV and we are here. Our mission is to cure HIV, to actually do ourselves uh, out of a job. And that's something that we're very focused on. But of course, before we get to the point of cure, there are many other innovative medicines that we want to bring into the use by physicians for patients. Um, and so for me, our mission is very clear and we need to bring about the innovation that makes that possible. So what's changed most over the two years since I've been in the role? Um, I think what we've seen is some incredible new medicines come out of our pipeline. So we've launched oral two drug regimens, both uh, dolotegravir plus um, rolpivirine and dolotegravir plus 3TC. And we're about next year to launch the um, world's first long-acting injectable medicine. So for me, innovation is probably the thing that comes first to mind. But I think the other incredible thing that I have seen is the uptake of dolotegravir in the developing world. So the way our model works as a company is we uh, agree a price with governments and payers in the developed world. In the uh, middle-income countries, we strike um, high-volume, low per unit um, tenders, low price per unit tenders with um, the governments in those countries, be that Brazil or Russia. And then in the developing world, we, we give our intellectual property up, if you like, and we give voluntary licenses to its manufacturers. And they're able, therefore, to 
to build upon our regulatory files, all our data and all of our technology transfer. And they're then able to bring our medicines um, into the hands of healthcare professionals and patients across uh, the developing world. So what's really exciting for me, for example, is um, of the 37 million people who are living with HIV, actually over 6 million are now on a dolotegravir-based regimen. Now, that sounds quite a lot, doesn't it? But actually, if we talked to one another last Christmas, so only kind of, you know, 10 months ago, actually just over 4 million uh, were actually on dolotegravir. And most of those are actually in the developing world and they're on uh, a dolotegravir-based regimen, TLD, uh, tenofovir, lamivudine, and dolotegravir being the most popular. So if I think about somebody that's living in Kinshasa and then I think of somebody that's living in New York, they're actually most likely to be taking a dolotegravir-based regimen. And that makes me phenomenally proud. And that really has been something that's accelerated um, over the last kind of, well, nearly three years now since I started in my role. So innovation and access would be at the heart of who we are. And that's really what I'm most excited about so far in my tenure. On that theme of innovation and access, what would you say have been some important lessons learned for Vive over your 10-year period? You're celebrating 10 years as a company. What are those lessons learned that you think are are truly important to your work going forward? So I think what I would call out is the importance of partnership. In this disease, more than any other, partnership is crucial and you cannot go it alone, no matter which of the, uh, the the areas that you're sitting in. So if I think about, for example, our pediatrics program. So 35 million people living with HIV are adult, 2 million are children. Adults, actually, all of the work that we and our partners have done have been incredibly successful in ensuring adults across the world have access to dolotegravir and many other medicines as well. But Dolotegravir is the the one that you know is is number uh, one in terms of experienced and naive patients in the WHO guidelines. So for me, that's a great success. But pediatrics has become a, a challenge that we all need to face into, and it's one where I've learned the most in terms of the importance of partnership. So what we've done is we came together at the Vatican as a community ourselves, other pharma companies, PEPFAR, UNAIDS, the Global Fund, everybody that's involved in. HIV. We came together and said, this is a problem that has to be fixed because you've still got a lot of uh, children dying each year uh, from HIV AIDS, and then you've got a lot of new infections. So we've come together as partners to really tackle that issue. And we've got a very clear uh, plan, all of us, and we all know what we've got to do. So we've got to ensure that the regulatory file for dolotegravir five milligram tablets is submitted uh, in December this year. Uh, The generic manufacturers have got their commitments, CHI, and PEPFAR and the Global Fund, everybody's playing a role. And the community as well is a very important part of this, along with UNICEF and others. So so we come together to solve really, really tough, complex, difficult problems. And that probably is something I need to remind myself of every day. Whenever you're facing a really big challenge, you have to say, okay, so who am I going to partner with to overcome this? Because going it alone, you know, is never uh, as successful as working alongside others. So let me uh, ask you now about uh, community partnerships. Vive invests heavily mm-hmm. in communities and in a number of different uh, types of programs. Positive Action's been uh, in existence since 1992. 
Can you talk a little bit about how you see communities and that community partnership as being critical to uh, not only Vive's mission, but the global HIV goals? That's a very important question. I think having spent a lot of time um, talking to people who are part of our community programs all over the world, helping to develop the strategy for our community programs. The thing that strikes me is that those programs have to be by the community for the community. So the way in which you are successful is not by top down deciding this would be good for people. What we need to do is to see what people believe would be good for them. So the way our program works is it's um, it's almost like running a mini NGO where we have an amount of money available and it's quite a considerable amount and people come and they apply for grants. And we are very specific about the areas where we're looking to um, support. So um, we've got quite a big program in the US. We've got a, a considerable number of programs uh, that support um, adolescents, girls and women. We've got a focus on pediatrics. So there are some at-risk communities that we particularly focus on. And the community comes to us and applies for grants and we give those grants and then the community helps either build capacity in their local area or um, runs educational programs, focuses on diagnosis, stigma, whatever it is that they believe is best to ensure the, the health and the well-being of the community that they're working towards. That has been phenomenally powerful. You meet some incredible, incredible people. I spent some time in Zambia last year um, and met uh, one of our grantees who is spending all of their time and energy making sure that young adolescent girls don't drop out of school because when they do, there is a considerable risk that they will become HIV uh, positive for a whole raft of reasons. And so this is an intervention which is more about prevention, keeping girls in school, making sure they go on to, to finish high school and have a qualification, which then allows them to, to get a job. And that sort of work, which is very community-based, is incredibly powerful. And there are lots of other great examples around that, but you know, whether it's diagnosis, testing, all sorts of stuff. So it's very empowering, but it's by the people for the people. How do you see that differ between uh, Zambia, for example, with adolescent girls and young women? You mentioned New York earlier in terms of the various places and, and people who might be on Dolotegravir. How do you see your engagement, Vive's engagement with communities in Africa comparing to the United States, for example? So in Africa, the populations that we tend to work with and the community groups that we support generally are focused around children and adolescent women and girls because that's where the greatest level of need is. And in the US, for example, the the, the populations that are most at risk would be black men who have sex with men, Hispanic men who have sex with men, and actually women in the US, particularly African-American women. So we have a number of programs that are focused on those communities, but also we've got longstanding relationships with the MSM community all over the US. And that's, uh, and that's a group that we're very connected to, but a lot of our grants are focused around some of the most at-risk populations in this country, in the US, um, in the same way as they are in Africa. It's just the populations at risk look uh, slightly different. 
As you think about the next phase of the the global HIV response and what's on the horizon, what do you see as kind of best practices that need to be continued? And what what do you see as as key challenges and and obstacles maybe keep you up at night in terms of your, your job and your role? At the core of who we are is innovation. It's bringing new medicines or preventative treatments or cures into the hands of patients. So as I look to the future, the biggest opportunity for me is to ensure that the pipeline of new medicines that we are developing, uh, which are oral two drug regimens, long acting injectables, we've got uh, a PrEP, so a prevention medicine where you would have a, an injection every eight weeks and that would actually protect you from becoming HIV positive. We've got a pipeline of products which are in the main about uh, reducing the side effects that people experience from the medication. So making sure that people don't take any more medicine that they need to and that they don't take it any more frequently that they need to. So ultimately, we want to have uh, the greatest gap between one visit to the doctor where a, mini, a medicine may be administered and, and the next. So my dream is to have a sort of self-injectable, um, long-acting medicine that you basically take maybe four times a year. Obviously, prevention is extremely important. So that's part of the dream as well. And then ultimately, we get into cure. So for me, the biggest part of what I'm excited about, because it's the unique thing that we bring, is innovation. In terms of challenges, honestly, the challenges that you know I experienced when I was first working in HIV, which was 19 years ago now, are probably still the biggest challenges that we face today. It's about funding. It's about commitment. It's about stigma. And it's about, you know, people living with HIV, not having to the access to the medicine and the healthcare that they need. Yes, we've made strides forward, but I do think that there is a lot more that we still need to do, both in the developing world and middle income countries, but also in the developed world as well. So if we think about our desire to achieve 1990-90, which you referenced at the beginning, we're off track for that at the moment. And in fact, the US is one of the countries that's quite considerably off track because if you think about the third 90, which is viral suppression, 90% mm -hmm. of people on treatment achieving viral suppression. In the US, I think the, the current number is 52%. Mm -hmm. So that's quite a gap. And of course, we've set ourselves a very ambitious global goal where we want to achieve 90, 90, 90. So 90% of those who are living with HIV diagnosed, of those 90% on treatment, and of those on treatment, 90%, we want to see 90% of those people virally suppressed. And actually, that is um, a goal, as you said at the beginning of the piece, that we're not currently on track to achieve, which is quite disappointing. Mm -hmm. And there are all sorts of barriers to that, um, both in the developing and middle income countries, but actually in developed countries such as the US, if you think about the most important 90, which is 90% achieving um, viral suppression, Actually, in the US, only 52% of people living with HIV who are on treatment are actually reaching that, that goal. And that's quite low. And therefore, we've got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. The good news is um, there is now an initiative in the US which is uh, intending to reach that 90-90-90 goal by 2030 and to see uh, new infections reduced by 70%. And, and that's great. And there's resource there to sort of, you know, fund that. But 
at a global level, there's still a lot for us to do. But I'm a huge optimist and I believe that, you know, we will reach those goals eventually, but we must not think that this is a, an issue that's been solved and therefore lose our focus. 1990 is where we need to get to. Continuing on that thread, and you mentioned the US, you're here in Washington. Are there messages that you would want US policymakers to, to hear and really understand about where we are globally with HIV, including with the US domestic epidemic and response? What do you think they need to understand about where we are and what the future looks like? What I would want US policymakers to understand would be how important it is to have the energy and the resources to ensure that we meet the 1990-90 goals in the US and that we really do continue to focus on reducing uh, new infections. So there are 38,000 new infections in the US a year. And the goal is that by 2030, we reduce that by 90%. Without achieving the 1990-90 goals and reducing the number of new infections, that means that the US will not be where the rest of you know Western Europe and other sort of developed markets are. And I guess the, the, the question is, do we have an ability to really support the populations, which are particularly in the southern states where most of the um, new infections are? Do we have the right support, the right infrastructure, the right healthcare, the right investment to ensure that those most at-risk populations are supported and ultimately that will unlock the opportunity to hit the, uh, you know, the big audacious goal that the U.S. government has set for itself. You mentioned earlier funding as a as a barrier, uh, and we've we're just on the other side of the global fund replenishment. I think everyone is thrilled that the the target pledge has come in fourteen billion dollars. But as we look ahead, and there's a lot of uncertainty, certainly here in the U.S. with our own political situation at the moment. How do you see U.S. leadership in global HIV and uh, the importance of sustaining the funding, in particular? from the US uh, as we look ahead. The first thing I want to acknowledge is the phenomenally powerful role that the US has played at a global level in tackling the HIV epidemic. So if you think about the role of PEPFAR, if you think about the funding that the US has given to the Global Fund and many other institutions, actually, I think it's really fantastic example of how the US can set an example for the rest of the world around how it supported all of the issues that surround kind of the, the, the 37 million people who are living with HIV. So I think there's a lot to be proud of in terms of what's been achieved uh, so far. And, and incredible partners, you know, to us have been PEPFAR and the, the Elizabeth Glazy Pediatric AIDS Foundation, the Global Fund. So all of those institutions, quite incredible. And what I think we need to do is to continue that funding, continue that support, continue that partnership. Because I said earlier on, the only way that we will really tackle this epidemic is together. And actually, so far, the US has played an incredible leading role overseas. And I want to thank everybody that's done that, but encourage that partnership and that leadership to continue. And then obviously, the other half of that is, you know, really focusing on tackling the epidemic at home and making sure that in the US, um, at-risk populations are supported to uh, be part of a positive 1990-90 story. We are 
having our conversation right now ahead of, of a public session on increasing access to innovative HIV technology. Uh, and we released, in line with the event, a primer on HIV prevention. And one of the things we point out in that paper is the absence of discrete, user-friendly technology for really the history of the pandemic up till recently with oral PrEP. And the injectable PrEP in Cabotegravir is, uh, to me, such an important innovation in, and potentially revolutionary in terms of what that means for people who want to take control of their prevention, and particularly if they're vulnerable and, and marginalized. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and, and how you see that impact and, and what you think is going to be important to ensuring that uh, it has the impact that you're desiring once it's released. So we have a medicine which is an injectable medicine every eight weeks uh, called cabotegravir. We've got two very large ongoing studies at the moment, which were funded in partnership with ourselves, the NIH and uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And those studies are looking at men and transgender women in one study. And then in the other study, it's a women's study. And we wanted to study both populations because actually in the past, the medicines that are available have been much more focused on men. And mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that all individuals at risk were actually supported by this medicine. So I'm excited about the fact that we're covering both genders. Uh, in fact, the women's study is powered to to demonstrate superiority. So that's something that, you know, we're, we're hoping will make a big difference. It allows you to take control of your prevention. It's very discreet. So you're not taking a tablet. There's no kind of disclosure um, problems that you could face. And I think in both the developed middle income and developing world, that is a very powerful proposition. What we're doing at the moment is discussing with our partners um, how in the developing world that um, medicine could be implemented. So, so yes, we, we, we think we've got a, a sort of a successful medicine. We need to see how the clinical trials read out, but let's say they're positive. The question then is, what's the implementation program? Mm -hmm. And that is something that we're working on at the moment in terms of doing some potential kind of pilot type projects to see how in the developing world you would ensure that uh, a PrEP medicine that's injectable was given in a safe and appropriate way, consistent delivering the benefits that the clinical trials have shown that the medicine will deliver. So that is something that is very top of mind. I think it's a massive opportunity. I think, uh, you know, in, in the developed world, such as the US where PrEP is quite commonly used, but not as much as, as um, everyone would like, I think it's an opportunity. But actually, I think it's a massive opportunity, particularly for women and adolescent girls in Africa, um, because it's a very underserved population. It's a very vulnerable population. And this is potentially a way that we could give power back to those women. Well, thank you, Deborah, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, Go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.